Welcome to the Dixie Polls Podcast. My name is Travis. I'm a Southern man de-reconstructing the South. Um, so, just a little preface before we actually get into the actual content. Uh, I'm solo this weekend, and um, uh, my co-host Luke is, you know, he's had some family, you know, he, he wanted to have some family time. You know, life gets in the way of us all. Uh, but that's fine. That's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll work through this together. Um, so I'm going to be reading from Dabney's third volume of his discussions. And the title of this is called, um, bring it up here, I should have already brought it up, uh, The Labor Unions, The Strike, and The Commune. I thought this was a very fitting uh, essay to, um, to read from, seeing as how it's going to be released Labor Day weekend. And um, so, so struggle with me for a moment because the, the, what I'm reading from it has some faded out areas, some parts are hard to read, and then just some words are not exactly very common. Um, but neither here nor there, I hope you get a lot out of this. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm really doing this for two reasons. One, to get some content out this week, but also for the, um, the fact that I want to preserve these in audio format. Uh, I'm probably going to go back up and touch up some spots uh, whenever I actually you know, publish these in a, in a complete volume. Uh, and it's for two reasons. One's just for posterity purposes. And the other is to make it accessible to the common man who doesn't have time to sit down and read through the discussions. You know, they can pop on one of the discussions like eh, driving to and fro work or whatever, uh, that kind of thing. But um, without further ado, I um, hope you enjoy it. It's uh, from uh, Dabney's third volume of discussions. Have a good one. So this essay comes from, uh, it's a reproduced and enlarged from the Texas Review of 1891. It's in the third volume of Dabney's discussions, and it's entitled The Labor Union, The Strike, and The Commune. Um, I, I'm not the best orator, but uh, you can struggle along right with me. The labor unions have been a very obstructive phenomenon in the latter years of the 19th century. In professions, they are voluntary societies of working men for the protecting the rights of labor. Were the only associations for protecting the lawful rights of laborers, no more political ejection could lie against them and against the Granger Society, Social Club, Art Unions, or Christian churches themselves. But the real and main design is far other. Their avowed purpose and practice are, first, to control the discipline which employers exercise over individual laborers, members of the union, and second, to coerce the payments of higher wages by employers to the laborers. Their weapons of coercion for both ends is the strike. The labor union has its council and executive head elected by the laborers from among themselves and its union-funded raised by monthly or weekly contributions from their wages. Each member is bound by strict vow to obey this council and chief implicitly. Here is the working of the machine. Among the laborers of certain mine or factory is A.B., a union man, whom his employers find unpunctual, insolent, incompetent of his work, or drunken. The employers protect themselves by paying him off and discharging him the only possible mode of self-protection left them under the hireling system of labor. 
But now the chiefs of the Union interfere. They say A.B. is under the protection of the Union. Therefore, the employer shall retain him and pay him full wages, although they believe he does not suit them, nor does not earn half his wages, and indeed is doing serious and permanent injury to the credit of the firm. By scamping his work, if the employers decline to submit, they are at once punished by a strike under the orders of the Union chiefs. Every labor is to leave his employment at the concerted signal. Every will in the factory is to be stopped. All production is to be arrested and the employer's whole investment reduced to a dead capital until such a time the union chiefs may see fit for ending the strike. Meantime, the laborers and their family, after eating up savings, draw a small pension from the union fund, which provides them with a scanty subsistence until such time as their punishment works submission in the hearts of their employers. Or if the issue between the union and the employers is the rate of wages, a similar strike is relied on to coerce the latter into paying such wages as the laborers think they should have. Such is the theory of the strike. The moral and economic objections are patent and trite. The period of total idleness is often ruinous on the habits of the men. The system establishes the state of chronic social welfare between employers and the employed, instead of conditions of kindly cooperation which is so essential to the happiness of feeling and prosperity in the business. The strike entails a fearful destruction of wealth. All profits on the plant of the employer is lost, while the savings of the laborer are eaten up in unproductive consumption, and their time, which is their money, is wasted for naught. The, con the community as a body is left so much the poorer. Upon this loss follows another economic result which deserves to be more fully explicated. The law is this, whenever any hindrance or construction from any cause whatsoever is applied to the production, the practical hardship thereof are shifted over and delivered down by the better endowed members of the community until they press upon the class owning no property except their labor, which forms the bottom stratum. If we compare those hardships to a load or weight laid upon the top of a wall, and the several strata of the community is the horizontal lines of stone, we shall have an exact illustration. The pressure of that load is ultimately delivered down upon the bottom stratum. The result is ensured by a universal principle of human nature, the preference for one's own welfare and the welfare of those he loves over that of strangers. An individual instance will best prove this. We will suppose the head of a family, a stockholder in the manufactory, which is undergoing a strike. He is not one whit more selfish or less charitable than any other rich man or laboring man. The dividends on his stock constitute his family's revenue. By reason of the strike, those dividends will drop this year from $2,500 to $1,800. He and his wife will hold a council upon the question, what will be done? They are prudent people who do not wish to go into debt. What will they do? Just what all other parents in the world would do. They will so change their expenditures as to live on the $1,800 while imposing up on themselves and the children they love the lightest possible hardship of re-entrenchment and retaining as many of the solid comforts of his life as possible. Their re-entrenchment will work after this fashion. Mother will say, Hus Husband, hitherto we have indulged our girls by having their finer raiments upon them by a dressmaker. The girls must learn with my help to be their own manumakers. And we have leisure enough. Father adds, our eldest Emily is now quite proficient in her music. 
Why can she not give up the piano lessons to the young girls as to save the money of the heavy cost of a music teacher? Just so, says the mother, and we can also dispense with one of the maids, says, for the girls are very well to do a sweeping dusting of the chambers, and the exercise will be good for their health. And, adds the father, there's our boy Tom, who is a great strapping fellow, passionately fond of horses. Why can not Tom groom and harness old Baldy before and after his school hours so we can dispense with a hired groomer? So the family adjusts themselves to a reduced income without any real loss of comfort. Only they have to be some what more busy and have less time for idling and loafing, which is all the better for their health and cheerfulness. But how does this re-entrenchment work? Upon the understratum. This dressmaker who thus lost the custom of a large family is Miss Betty Jones, the daughter of a poor and sickly old widow, whom she must support along with herself by her needle. On her re-entrenchment presses a real and possibly a cruel hardship. But who can blame this gentleman and his wife for their prudent and honest measures? Surely it would be still more cruel in them to continue employing Betsy Jones' needle, and they fail to pay her. So the professional music teacher who loses three pupils, a fifth or fourth part of her income, Miss Lucy Hill, a poor but refined woman who has to support herself and paralytic father, by her music fees. The discharged housemaid is Biddy Malone, the daughter of Mike Malone and one of the family of eleven, and the father is in a discharged groom, who has earned one-third of the bread and potatoes for his family by caring for old Baldy in the stable. Biddy's wages are gone, and she comes up back upon her father to be fed, while half his means for buying food are gone. Here are four deserving poor persons who are hit hard, as a consequence for this decline of the stockholder's income. But it is the strikers who are really responsible for the cruel blows. I have given a particular instance, which is thoroughly typical. Other causes will endlessly be in detail, but will all work under the same principle in every case where injury or construction is planned along against the resources of the property class. The injured designed for themselves to be mainly the evaded and handed down until the alight upon the bottom class beneath them. Here we have a biting illustration of the folly, a folly equal to its dishonesty but all the hostilities of the labor against capital. Every blow which the working men are instigated to aim at their employers must prove a boomerang. Next we find the attempt to coerce employers by strike as futile, as mischievous. The pretensions of a labor union must appear to the employers unjust, usurping, and even insolent. It surely provokes resistance. But in the co contest thus began the employer having every advantage. They have more means saved up upon them to live. The arrest of production means, for them only, the re-entrenchment we have described above, while for the laborers is means destitution and hunger. So the employers hold out the longest, and the union men have to submit after all this bootless loss. But stronger elements of defeat appear. The labor unions does not include all the poor men of the vicarage. Many of these need employment badly, and are only too glad to accept the wages and employment which the union men have just disdained and rejected. Thus, after a few days' suspension, the wheels of the factory begin to revolve again with a new body of laborers, while the union men find themselves left out in the cold permanently. Thus, the strike system has proven an utter failure, and worse, unless the union men pr proceed to further measures which pass at once into criminality, 
These are always violent, and illegal attempts to prevent non-union men from accepting employment by insults, threats, blows, assaults, and even murders. The union resolves that the late employers shall not exercise their reasonable and lawful rights to form such contracts of labor as they and the new employees see fit to approve. They decree that these fellow citizens, their lawful equals, while not union men, shall not exercise the unalienable right of every free human being to work for a living and to make such contract concerning employment and wages as is satisfactory to them. Thus the union men pick at the gates of the factory. They denounce the new laborers as scabs and traitors to the cause of the working man. They make violent threats in extreme cases. They proceed to violent assaults, to murder, to arson, to assassination. Thus the labor union is transmitted into cat criminal conspiracy. Every intelligent and just mind views these ulterior motives as most outrageous wickedness and despotism wrought under the pretense of defending the rights of the working man. Yet, without these outrages, their system affects nothing but direct injury to them themselves. As to all concerns, obviously the concession to their demands means the confiscation of the employer's property, overthrow of the law. The raising of an aristocracy of rights in the union men as against their non-union equals, the fellow citizens and the enthronement of unions in the room of the lawful commonwealth, such as absolute commune. The true logic of the strike system is this. It is a forcible attempt to evade the dominant and legitimate influences of the universal economic law of supply and demand. This law instructs us that generally the relation of supply and demand, any commodity must regulate its price. Under this law, all production must proceed in civilized society. It is under this law that capitalists must produce and market the goods brought forth by his mine or his factory. It is under the, this law that the farmers and planters must rear and sell their crops. Labor is also a commodity, as truly as wheat or cotton or cloth, as though all citizens whose circumstances must prevent the successful formation of labor unions, must also contract to sell their labors under the dominion of the same law of demand. If the supply offered in the market exceeds the demand, the price must go down. The general law is inexorably the producer of the commodity must submit to receive less for what they have to sell, and so content themselves with smaller profits, or they must find means to produce their commodity more cheaply. Particular circumstances may in some cases suspend the working of this law, particularly and temporarily. But, as the general law, it is a prevalent and regular as the law of gravitation in physics. The advocates of labor unions do not pretend to deny, they expressly avow, that the purpose and end of their system is to convene this law as to the commodity which they have to sell, that this particular form of labor they perceive that the labor unions and the strikes are expedient from the great majority of the fellow citizens are utterly precluded by this nature of their occupation, and that the very reason why the unionists value these expedites. They know perfectly that if all other forms of labor in the commonwealth found it equally feasible to protect their own occupation from the law of supply and demand by their own labor unions and strikes, the whole system
would be negatory. For instance, what the spinners in the factory gained by forcing up their wages would be neutralized by what they would lose to the farmers when they came to buy their food. If the farmers also could have a union labor, would they also force up the price of their crops proportionally and equitably? From this point of view, the thoughtful reader sees that the labor unions are rather conspiracies against fellow citizens and fellow laborers than against oppressive employers. We observe that these societies thrive chiefly among operatives in mines, factories, among the class of artisans in town, among printers, among the employees of the railroad lines or the wharves of shipping. This is because circumstances peculiar to the occupation render those measures feasible and convenient. Either they live in the same village or they can easily meet there in a uniformity of each industry. Their compensation is immediately in the money wages for labor. But let us observe how a numerous and vast class of meritorious laborers are entirely prevented from combining and successfully to force their wages up by strikes. The maid servants, the cooks of America, the hundreds and thousands of school ma'ams, who teach the children of their country for paupers' wages, the millions of hired farm laborers, the more numerous million of yeoman farmers who till their little farms with their own hands, a still larger millions of toiling mothers and housewives are precluded from forming any effective labor unions by their disposition over a vast continent. Their diversities of conditions, their variety of productions, and the indirect modes of which they receive their final compensations, modes involved in commercial complications where the law of supply and demand must inevitably inevitably rule. Here appears at once the real purpose of the inequity of our existing system of labor unions. C.D. is a weaver at a cloth factory. Mr. E.F. is an honest farmer who must buy a good deal of cloth to clothe his family and himself. One element of the cost of the cloth to E.F. is the wages of C.D., the weaver, the but C.D. has received that E.F., his fellow citizen, and equal, shall not buy the element of value of the cloth, that is, equitable rate, which should generally dictate by the law of supply and demand. C.D. will force up the price against the farmers by the artificial forces of his monopoly ring, his threats for his strikes, but C.D. fully expects to buy the bread and meat for his family from the farmer E.F., under the strict operation of supply and demand. There is equity and democratic equality with a vengeance. But should any law or labor union enable the farmer to enhance the price of his food product of above the market rates as determined by supply and demand, C.D. would declare him much outraged. His labor union is a good rule for him, but it must not work both ways. I have now brought the reader to the point of view from which the justice of three practical remarks will be self-evident. When labor unionists denounce the great trust of the capitalists, the oil or sugar trust as monopolies, we have a curious instant of inconsistency and insolence. What are their societies but labor monopolies? In every essential feature there are iniquities, which the trust are only upon a smaller scale. And when political demagogues adopt the cause of these labor unions to cater for their votes, under the pretense of democracy, they are doing the most anti-democratic thing possible. Their cry is, for the masses against the classes, yet they are assisting the narrow class to plunder the masses of their fellow citizens. The second thing to be noted is the grounds and impudent claims of the labor unions that they are contending for the rights of American labor. 
This tactically assumes that the small minority of persons who belong to the labor unions are the only people in America who labor. I may digress for a moment to add that the same insolent falsehood is obtruded wherever the tariff system claims to be productive for American labor. As though forsooth the factory hands working upon protected manufacturers were the only people who performed deserving labor. Whereas it has been perfectly proven a hundred times that this class of laboring men are but a few hundred of thousands among the millions who labor in America, that they are already better paid than the average of their brethren, and that this protection is but a legalized method to enable them to take something from the unprotected earnings of their fellow citizens without value received, and to add it to their own. To return, there are a few hundred of thousands of labor labor unionists in the United States. The census of 1890 shows that the most there may be 4 million of persons engaged in occupation whose conditions, conditions rendered a labor union possible. But there are 7.5 million engaged in the heavier labor of agriculture under hotter suns and freezing winds to whom the arts of the labor union are impossible. They must produce and sell the crops under the exonerable operation of the law of supply and demand. And if oversupply or partial legislation reduces the price of their product below the cost of production, these millions must simply endure it. Methinks if there could be any honest labor union to protect the rights of American labor, it should be ones which should lift the wages of these tillers of the soil near the level enjoyed by the unionists. The average American yeoman earns about 50 cents per diem, with the course fair by its heavy toil, if we deduct from the price of the farm produce and the modern interest upon the capital which he employs, and the other elements of the cost of production except the manual labor, it's in the neighboring town the unionist bricklayer or plasterer scorns to lift the trowel for less than $5 a day. There are a thousand farm laborers to one bricklayer, yet this one tells us that his conspiracy is to be the protection of labor. What shall we say to the myriad of rural artisans who cannot perform labor unions? Of the hundreds of thousands of poor teachers and the school marms whose wages are $25 per month without boarding for four or five months of the year? And what of the 12 million of mothers and housewives who labor for their food and clothing in the most wearying of all tasks, year in and year out, not under an eight-hour rule where you may be sure, but somewhere between 12 and 18, and even 20 hours out of the 24. Are all these not laborers because they cannot be knights of labor? Yet the direct effect of the arts of the labor union is to raise the price of every roof which shelters, of every chimney and every pound of coal which warms, and every yard of clothes which covers, and which worse paid laborers in favor of a small minority already overpay in comparison. I'm not oblivious to the plea that the skilled labor is entitled to higher remuneration. The assumption is, is that all these form of labor of the unions are skilled labor, while the toils for these ill-paid masses are unskilled labors. This is exactly false. For instance, the, the effective farmer labor is far more skilled work than the bricklayer. The latter is on one dexterity, which is quite admirable. He strews a handful of mortar from his trowel, more quickly and presses down the brick after brick with his face to the line, more def deftly than the plowman could. 
Very true, but the plowman must be able to do with equal deftness a dozen different things, neither of which the bricklayer can do, and attempting several of which he would most likely be wounded himself or break his own neck. This farm labor must be a horsebreaker, must know how to guide the plow to wield the hoe as to cut away the spire of crabgrass within half an inch of the tender cotton stalk without scratching it. He must wield the axe. He must be a rough carpenter. He must be the butcher. Knowing how to dress a mutton or a swine, he must milk the cow. He must mount the dangers, mowing machines, and guide it. He must manage the complicated threshing machines and gins. He must be able to pick 250 pounds of seed, cotton per day, where the bricklayer could not get 100. It is the farmer who is a skilled laborer, and by that principle ought to receive the higher numeration. The third point being noted is that the fatuity of the so-called People's Party in associating themselves with a labor union in their present passions efforts to right the wrongs of the farmer. They are precisely as wise as would be the shepherd dog, who would insist upon enlisting the wolves along themselves to guard the flock. The interests of the Granger masses and of the labor unionists are directly hostile. For instance, here is the yeoman farmer who is toiling to pay off a mortgage on his homestead at a real wage of about 50 cents per day, deducting fair compensation for the employment of his capital teams and implements, etc. Does he need a cottage, a chimney in it, with a farm wagon and a thresher, a mower, a buggy, a plow, a rotary harrow? The labor union men are compelling him to pay much higher prices for these things by their conspiracies. For, of course, all the contractors and manufacturers add in the inflated price and the unionist labor in addition to their own profits. Upon the cost of everything they furnish the farmer, but the unionists are drawing two and a half to five dollars per day for their work, while the farmer gets a half dollar per day for his work. He must sell everything his farm produces, the source of which he at last gets his scanty earnings. Under the restless law of supply and demand, while they are so juggling with the arts of their conspiracy as to free themselves from the law, yet we shall find this fatuitous Granger enraged upon the loan corporations which lent him good money on his own terms, at this earnest entreaty and fraternizing with the knights of labor who are covertly skinning him. The principle of labor unions is virtually communism. It is instructive to watch the proofs of the truth presented by the developments of the Union system in Great Britain. The British liberals in 1845, represented by Joseph Hume and the famous Free Trade Society, announced the laissez-faire, free trade in commodities, and free trade in labor as the very gospel of economic and politics. The first half of the doctrine repealed the protection protective tariffs of Britain and placed her manufacturers in commerce upon the enlightened basis of thorough free trade, which founded the new era of marvelous progress and prosperity. The second half of the doctrine embodied the existence of the extra halls of anti-slavery. Free trade and labor meant for Joseph Hume and his friends that every laborer should be a free man with the right to make his own contracts of labor to suit himself but to make them like the farmer, the manufacturer, and the merchant under the common regulation of supply and demand. Obviously, equity demands that if the principle of free trade is to govern the commodities, it must be also govern labor. For labor is as true as a commodity to be bought and sold as cloth or wheat, 
or iron or sugar to enforce the production and sales of all the latter under the free law of supply and demand while the other commodity labor is fenced against that law is obvious class legislation and unjust to others. Hence the Anti-Corn Law League hated tariffs and domestic slavery with a hatred equally intense and holy. It is true that under the free trade regime, the property and the capital of Britain have made an enormous spring and doubled themselves in one generation. It is also true that under the same regimen, the labor of the proletariat gained greatly in its remuneration of the comforts and the condition. Measured in gold, the average of their wages has advanced 20 cents per since 1845 whilst the purchasing power of the increased wages has doubled by the results of free trade in the commodities of labor. But these happy consequences do not all satisfy laboring men in Britain or the advanced liberals. The former have generally adopted with passion the system of labor unions and strikes. The latter have pushed for their theories, though socialism on the verge of communism. Both the laborers and their theorists now reject the heat of the dogma of free trade and labor. They declare that this tyrannical rule and the direct road to the wage slavery as degrading the established as African slavery itself. They assert the inherent rights of labor unions to enforce their demands for higher wages by violence if necessary, notwithstanding the fact that this enforcement is a virtual confiscation of the personal property of the employer at the will of others in the form of this increment of wage that it is an infringement on the rights of non-union men, their own free equals, to work for such terms as to suit themselves and to that system organized in the rebellious imperium in impero civilitas, usurping a part of the functions and forces. The socialists argue that since their strikes are futilities unless the employers and non-union men be prohibited by force from contracting each other these scabs, thus accepting the place which the unions have rejected, make themselves the enemy of labor and therefore the proper objects of hostility and coercion. They say that there is essentially difference between free trade and commodities, which they all admit is very well, in free trade and labor, that the goods bought and sold under free trade are non-sentient and feel no pangs of destitution, but the laborers have muscles and nerves to be worn by overwork and stomachs to be pinched by hunger and hearts to be wrung by the poverty of their families. Therefore, the laborers ought to be entitled to protect their commodities, labor against the consequences of free trade. This is, of course, a very shallow sophism since the goods subjected to the rigorous law of supply and demand are endued with the element of labor since their sale is only medium through which the labor involved in them can get its wage, and thus the price of goods touch the welfare of the laborers who produce them, just as the effectively as the price of labor itself. The socialists then adopt, in substance, though perhaps not a valley, the Malthusian principle of which pressure of population upon means of subsistence. They argued thus, let every capitalist enjoy free trade and labor, hiring their operatives at whatever price the relation of supply and demand may dictate. Then, as the proletariat increases in number and wages, will go down as they reach the lowest level of that wretched subsistence, which enables the laborers only to exist, to be miserable, to be propagate heirs to their misery. 
Their cry now is down with free trade and labor, up with the un labor unions and strikes with the forceful coercion of the scab, the traitor, enemy of the class. Let the student see, for instance, this drift in the recent works of Dr. Benjamin Kidd entitled Social Evolution. In this new phrase and deduction, the Malthusian, there is unquestionable truth. It has been verified a hundred times in the depressions of the deficient compensation and misery of free labor, in hireling commonwealths and other emissions must be made. No existing commonwealth organized exclusively upon the hireling labor theory has yet found a full remedy for this deplorable tendency, no matter how liberals or even democratic its constitution. Sentimentalists may kick against a great Malthusian law, may call it antiquated, and, and may vilipend it. But nonetheless, there remains a true and fundamental law of population. No permanent release from its inexorable operation is found in any economical or political expedient. When the means of subsistence increased on any society population, always tends to increase up to the new level. Then is that new level of subsistence not to be further raised population will proceed to press upon it and overpass it. The proletariat will accustom itself first to the part of the luxuries and then to submit to the scant, scantier supply of comforts. And as long as the earnings are sufficient to support existence, this laboring class will continue to obey nature's instinct to increase and multiply. It is true that since the days of the Anti-Corn Law League, the wages and the comforts of the proletariats in Britain have increased handsomely under free trade. But the advanced socialists insist that this improvement will stop and then ebb as soon as the certainty of other foreigners and temporary agents cease to operate. These are not the wonderful expansions of British commerce, which yet cannot expand forever. The opening to tillage of new and vast food production areas outside of Britain, the amazing improvements in both land and ocean transportation, the wide opening for immigration and marvelous new applications of physical science to production and the unbroken prevalence of maritime peace over the whole area of Britain commerce. Behold how under these new and temporary agencies the proletariat population of Britain has sprung forth with an increasing rivalry, the mushroom growth of the new American democracy, thus giving us another startling evidence of the truth of the Malthusian law. But all earthly expansion must stop somewhere. A colt may grow wonderfully when placed in rich, fresh pastures, but after five years of age he must stop growing no matter what is in his pasture. All earthly advancements must reach their limit, and the socialists assert that when the British reach their limit, the Malthusian principle combined with free trade and labor will at once begin to depress the laboring class of Britain, and this must go until they become miserable wage slaves again, like the peasantry of France and Europe and Southern Europe and the revolution before Ireland in 1840. It is not necessary for me to say whether the whole point of the socialist argument will prove correct. My purpose is to point the reader to the violent inconsistency into which it has betrayed them. They have ever been and still declare themselves the passionate enemy of domestic bondage. No language has been adequate to express their scorn and hatred for the recent social system of the southern United States. No class of accursed have ever done more by the false accusation, slander, and vilification to bring up on the fair region an undeserved and unremorsed deluge of revolution, war, devastation, and tyranny than these advanced socialists. But now, lo, we find them with equal passion asserting 
a doctrine which leads directly back to a form of slavery far more ruthless than domestic bondage. Every man of sense knows that when this is forbidden by force to work wherever he chooses in the wages which suits him, even if in a law occupation is no longer a free man, he is a slave. The power which commands me where I shall not work is the same which the slave power, which commands another where he shall work. Again, when the labor union has forbidden me, a non-union man, to do the lawful work which suits me for the support of my family, I ask, to whom then must I look to for the subsistence of those I love? Their answer is, join the union and draw your weekly pension from the community fund, which will be issued to you as long as it lasts, and you implicitly obey here I am enslaved, far worse enslaved than the African bondsmen of the South, for while the labor union may issue for me a little time of pittance, which may prevent starvation out of the scantity fund, created only by a tribute taken out of my own previous wages, the southern bondmen drew all the time a full subsistence, whether the business of the commune was profitable or not. And to the giving of his livelihood, the head of the commune was bound, if not by his own humanity of but by public opinion, by statute law, and by self-interest more imperious than, than either. And to finish the undiminished livelihood, there was, there was bound not a scantity fund gathered by extraction from the laborer's wages, but the whole capital and profit of the head of that commune, excluding the return of his own personal industry. But this is only half the story. If the labor man, that is, the commune, is to have full authority to fit its forbid its members to work, then it must make itself responsible for the full subsistence of the laborers and their family. But it is the commune is responsible for it. It must have authority to command the members where they shall work and enforce that command. Without this power, the commune could not possibly fulfill its pledges to furnish subsistence to its subjects. But the essence of slavery is the obligation of compulsory labor and the dependence upon the will of another for subsistence. Communism is slavery. It advocates cheats themselves by explaining. But the member elect their own rulers and this is liberty. A very hollow cheat this is indeed. Let communism be established as a rule of commonwealth and there will be the real state of the case. In name, the majority will elect masters over themselves and the unwilling minority. But democracy and universal suffrage have taught us too well that that means nominally the majority was really the official wire pullers with, will determine the choice of the masters over both majority and minority. Should this result not follow that we should the communistic elections fulfill most honestly the most flattering promises of the system, still we should have the results of this minority would be the slaves to the majority. And the major mob is always the most ruthless of masters. Let us again make the vital point of this discussion, though salient, the ultra-socialist will attempt to obscure it by saying that the best constituted republic, the minority, has to obey the majority, and this is not slavery for anybody, but liberty for all. I reply that herein two profound falsehoods. The first is that the true republic, the minority, do not obey the majority, but both obey the Constitution. The principle of such government is given by the sublime work of Andrew Melville, Lex Rex. The citizen does not owe his allegiance to the mere will of the accidental major mob, but to the sacred authority of the Constitution which rules the states. 
the power which this Constitution may have conferred upon the majority is only conventional, deputed, and limited. The clearest majority may only exercise that power within the limits prescribed for it by the Constitution, and when it exceeds the limits, the will of the majority is no more the righteous rule of the citizens than the howling wind. But the second and more essential falsehood is here. The true republic does not legislate at all concerning the personal rights, the preferred occupations of the compensation, therefore, or the subsistence of the families. All these matters belong to the individual sovereignty as citizens. The republic only attempts to regulate those outer regulations of citizen to citizen, which renders them social beings under the principle of commutative justice. But the commune undertakes in addition to the command at what the work is enforced its command to fix my recompense and at to appoint the subsistence allotted to me and my family. This evades the whole sphere of my personal sovereignty. It is the essence of slavery. Moreover, all history teaches us that the more paternalistic any government becomes, be it its form either imperial, monarchical, monarchical, aristocratic, or democratic, the more will of its officials engross the power of the state and the earnings of the citizens themselves. The experience is universal, either by avowed class legislation or by unavowed chicanery. They always do it. The cause of this result is plain. The more paternalistic the government, the more of the aggregated wealth, services, and rights of this citizen does it handle. This is to say... The more of these do the officials of the government handle, but such masses of wealth and power present to be the natural greed of, men to, of men's temptations too strong to be resisted. Now of all governments, the commune is the most completely paternalistic. Therefore, the officials of the commune, by which we mean the all-included commune of the local commune, the commonwealth, these all have the handlings of the earnings, wealth, and services, and subsistence of all citizens. Therefore, the engrossments of all these, by the official will, be the most enormous. For instance, the township institution of the Russians are communistic. The imperial government is an absolute commune. But the Emperor Nicholas himself, the most authoritarian czar, declared the official peculation and tyranny were more gigantic in Russia than anywhere in Europe. Thus it leads that communism must be essentially slavery under which the citizens are the slaves and the masters is impersonal and therefore the most remorseless and greedy of all masters. Now of all things in the 19th century, southern bondage was the one which the advanced socialists most hotly abused. The condemnation of the South Plantation as the sum of all villainies, but the plantation was virtually the very commune which they desired to establish, except that the southerners had certain saving differences which made it better for their proposed form. The capital of the plantation, the earnings and services, all, of all upon the comp composed common fund. The labor of these members were compulsory, but the common fund was bound to them for their subsistence by them and their family, fully as comfortable as the provided by the United States for their enlisted soldiers, including housing, fuel, clothing, food, medical assistance, rearing for their minor children, and the pensions of the old. The past active service, the net earnings of the active members after subtracting the cost of their own subsistence and their small interest upon the capitalists furnished them, went into the common fund to meet the last two drafts. Here was but a small, true commune, 
The head of the commune was not elected by slave members, but was hereditary and was a great gain, saving all concerns upon the waste of time and money and morals, which always attended pretended elections into the paternalistic democracy. But the grand saving feature in the South commune, in the Southern commune, was that one, one which our socialists most abhor, the legal establishing of the head of the commune of a right of property in the involuntary labor of members. Our opponents exclaim that this is the essence of slavery. I reply that this is true, but I have shown that their plan must vest in the commune itself, that is the office holders, the power of control over involuntary labor of the members, and the disposal of their earnings, else the society must speedily be bankrupt and starve its dependents. But this is giving the commune that the office holders property and the involuntary labor except in this all-important respect that it has failed to enlist any domestic feelings or any self-interest of the head of the welfare members. In such an association, what need the office holder cares if the labor members die or if the infants of his family perish of destitution, he loses no property. He has just so many as the fewer cares to worry about. For instance, when the crew of the Patriot British ship, which conquered the invincible Armada at Gravelines, were decimated by the spoiler beer which the commissaries furnished, what did these care? The private profits upon the beer contract were safe in their pocket, and many soldiers of General Churchill, Duke of Marlow, died in the hospitals. This was but so much to his advantage, for he could continue their names upon the payroll of the army and quietly pocket their wages and allowance. The greater the suffering and mortality, the more his riches grew. When British paupers died in the workhouses under the late law system, who cared what official, what taxpayer? The United States had a brief experience in this under the, under the notorious Freedman's Bureau. We presume that these wards of the nation dropped off and the average office holders felt no emotion but relief. So now when a hireling sickens or dies, his employer has lost nothing. He has but to hire another in his place. But our southern communism, by making the labor the master's property, awoke an all-powerful motive for taking the best care of it. If the laborer died from overwork or destitution, so much of the master's property was totally lost. If he was sickened, its value was impaired. Hence the statute law, which required a master to provide reasonable subsistence under all conditions of production, however profitless for his bondsmen, their aged and their offspring, which made this provision for the first lien not only upon the annual products of their estate, but upon its free, simple value, and even upon his personal earnings in a separate profession, was an enforceable law, and was always enforced, if not by affection and self-respect by the all-powerful self-interest. It was not like the rules of the ultra-democratic societies which speciously required all officers to use their power for the public good alone, so commonly remained a dead letter. Hence, while a few masters were tyrannical and stingy, the bondsmen in general had better food, clothing, housing, fuel, medical attendance, than any other peasantry in the world. While the employer of hireling labor pushing forward his railroad, his canal, his malaria farm, his mine, his chemical works care, not whether his laborers lose wealth or life, or not the southern master in hiring his bondsman and another always made a part of the contract that he should not be employed in an unhealthy occupation. The late southern form of communism was therefore the only defensible.
The theory, combined with other dogmas of socialists, outraged every fundamental position of human nature and of human action. It appeals to the prevalent principle of self-interest precisely in the wrong place, stimulating its powerful and the office holder's selfishness, neglect, and mousetrophance. While it loses its impulse and word, works of production for the general behoof, the communism ignores man's desire for personal possessions, his right to an individual home, blessed according to his own choice in those possessions, his zeal for the welfare of his children, his right to bequeath to them and the proceeds of his own labor. No system can endure which thus discards the fundamental law of nature. A structure built without a foundation must tumble. But the folly, folly of ideal, ideologues and demagogues may persuade some discontented and misguided commonwealth to attempt the general commune. But it is impossible to attempt should continue. Its only permanent results will be the destruction or enormous mischief of the material civilization, moral and happiness of the society. The people disgusted with this experiment will speedily struggle back to some political order less insane, usually to one more despotic and less benign than that which they deserted, or else communism will destroy their wealth and civilization and bring it down to a chronic barbarism. An authentic incident of the one of the great uniting strikes in Pennsylvania well illustrates this. A yeoman farmer won harvest the products of his or little orchard and field, when a sturdy loafer demanded a bag of apples and potatoes with a plea that he had neither money nor provisions for his family. And who might be you, asked the farmer, a striking miner, out of work for many weeks with a reserve fund of the union, utterly exhausted and the strike unadjusted. And inquired the farmer, why did you strike at first? Because the company, said the miner, with sundry indignant epitaphs, refused to raise our daily wages from one and a half dollars to one and three-fourths. So, said the honest farmer, I earn my farming working at one and a half dollars per day, and you reject work of three times that price? None of my apples or potatoes are for such as you. The farmer was right to act of the oligarchs are aggravated in injustice by the fact that they were already paid better than the majority against whom they would enhance prices. The system would carry intrinsic injustice to the capitalist in two ways. First, that it demands virtually the right of intaking both sides of the bargain in this contract of labor and wages. Each party is entitled to make his own side for the bargain. For if the offer made him was the other side does not suit him to withdraw. There is no visible limit to the degree of injustice. Strikers say that they strike because wages go below the limit of comfort supply. But what is a comfortable supply for a working man? If the strikes are to decide, it may have Havana cigars, canvas-back ducks, and truffles. With Chateau Magru wine, the system encourages limitless extravagance and waste, all at the expense of other people's capital and the other parts of the working public. Second, the capitalists are selling the products to their factories have the submit to the great law of supply and demand. But the laborers, in selling their labors to the capitalists, insist on evading the law. There is no equity there. As to the rights of the public order and the other laborers, the system tends to consistently and violently to pass from a method of mutual production to a criminal conspiracy. The sole object of a threatened strike is to compel employers to pay prices for labor in advance of these indicated by supply and demand. If the supply were not full, demand alone would raise the price of labor. 
and the strike would be superfluous. Now the striker as free men have an undoubted right to decline work and wages they think unfair. They may be very unwise in declining, but it is their right. And here their rights end. But if the policy stops there, the employers will naturally defend themselves from this coercion by going into the labor market and hiring at the market price that substituted help, which the full supply offers. Thus, if the strike stops where the lawful rights of the strikers end, it is inevitably futile. Of course, then, it will not stop there. They will go further to violate the rights of others who have an indef indefensible right to take up any lawful work and wages they choose. Strikers will go to attack this right by boycotting, by obliquely, by threatening, by terrorism, by violence, by murder. And when dynamite is introduced to punish with death innocent persons happening to use the appliances of the obnoxious employer, the crime is worthy only to devils. To sum up, if the equal rights of the laborers are accepted, the work and the wages rejected are respected and strikes are futile. If those rights are obstructed by force, strikes are criminal conspiracies. And our point is that the latter is their logical tendency. Unfortunately, the frequency of these outrages, as the sequel of strikes confirms the charge, in fine only three modes are possible for adjusting the wages of labor and interest of capital. One is to leave the adjustments under equitable laws, which shall hold laborers and property holders equal to the great law of supply and demand. The second is to have the government tax minimum and unminimum prices by statute. The third is to leave the combination of laborers and employers against each other. For if the combine, of course, the others will. The second plan is mis mischievous despotism. See it's working in the French Revolution. The third splits society into warring factions and tends to barbarism. Such is an impartial estimate of the tendency of trade unions. The gravity of the prospect is increased when we consider the passionate determination of the members. They seem more and more in love with their plans and cherish them as their final and complete hope. We are told that the movement spreads continually. It has propaganda and newspapers. It confederates the different branches of mechanical labor more and more widely. It aspires to hold the balance of power in elections and will before long claim the control of legislatures and congresses. Will primary education be its antidote? The negative to this hope seems to be pronounced in the fact that thus far these projects have grown just as primary education has extended and precisely to the places which most rejoice in its means the same discouragement follows from observing the spe species of developed produ produced the initial grade of knowledge and intelligence just adequate to the suggestion of a number of unsatisfied desires and the adoption of the shallow, shallow plausibilities of sophistical theories for their gratification. While the breadth of wisdom needed to show the hollowness of, the, of therein has not been att attained, and this dangerous, dangerous solecism is aggravated by the self-sufficiency inspired by a conceit of culture. This primary education exactly prepares a population for reading and acceptance of superficial newspapers. Without the circulation of newspapers, there will be no trade unions and no strikes of any moment. The primary school and the newspapers press play into each other's hands in assisting these dangerous organizations. 
In human hands, all the best things are preferred to some mischievous use, and here we have the preservation of the two things, the school and the press. The primary school enables the youth to read. Poor human nature usually craves a less wholesome pablum of its powers, and here the superficially cultivated reader uses his little talent to read the newspapers instead of his Bible. The demagogue and the design agitator sees at once that the newspaper is engine for weighing such a mind as he makes one low sophistical and shallow enough to suit his audience. Thus the country has its literature of strikes, communism, confiscation, and dynamite with myriads of readers. The more rapid progress of the late Confederate states and the creation of the accumulation of wealth, as demonstrated by the successive census returned from 1840 to 1850 and 1860, was accounted for in part by the absence of strikes. The Negro laborers could not combine. The white found no motive to do so. Thus far, the emancipated Negro has not formed the species of trade unions as by the race lines. But the southern people now are now amalgamation, giving them the universal common school education. The results will be sure as a cycle of the seasons that before long they will also form their own trade unions on the color line. They will form them because their partial culture will exactly prepare them for the sophisms and attractions because they have already shown a marked tendency towards cooperative associations and passionate fondness for them. Because as of now, free labor, they must feel the stimuli to that course. Now on almost omnipotent, felt by white artisans among us, they will form them on the color line for no other reason because the whites have already applied that line everywhere to their trade unions and that with a passionate vigor. One of the future problems and perils of this country is the race contest, where the industrial centers have a million of Negroes educated up to use the stump speech, the radical newspapers and the revolvers closely organized in trade unions, and the peace of the country will hang in constant suspense. Two anecdotes have been proposed for the poison involved. In these unions, one is the application of the cooperative plan, which has been so successfully applied in England in the work of distribute, in distribution to the industries of productions. In retail distri distributions, the Rochdale plan has indeed wrought wonders, at least in England. It is still to be seen whether the system can be made work among Americans with their eager and intense individuality. But there appears on reflection a fatal difference when we attempt to apply to the industries of to the industries of production. It proposes to identify the relations and interests of the employer and the laborers. It says that it says these shall be truly stockholders in the joint concerns and capitalists as those. But unfortunately, the difference between employers and laborers, between the property class and the property less class, has arisen out of natural and acquired differences of personal attributes, for changing which these methods of cooperation are as weak as the Pope's bull against the common. In a country like this, where the laws are already equal, the whole difference between those who have property and those who do not has been made by the presence of lack of talents of acquisition in themselves or their parents. The well-to-do families are so because they are working members and have energy, skills, prudent foresight. Self-denial is also perhaps selfishness. 
Especially does the creation of saved-up capital, the feature which makes the man an employer instead of an employee, depends on, a, depends on self-denial. The common proverb says, Riches comes more by saving than by making. Political economy teaches the same, showing us that each man saved up capital represents exactly so much self-denial, either in him by his forefathers, in reserving present income and then the, from the indulgence of present desires. For the distance and remote use of capital is in the future. Again, sagacity in applying and investing and using the precious savings is more important than either rapid skills and earning or self-denial and not spending. Here is your rapid effective worker who does earn large wages. Neither does he eat them up in immediate indulgences. His mind is keenly bent on accumulation. And somehow his money is ever put into the bag with holes. His ventures in investments are ill-chosen and unlucky. He has an infinite amount of mental activities about plans and investments, but he never, but he ever lacks the mother wit. The sagacious insight, which is a natural gift, and this picture is seen in the country more frequently than instances of poverty from sheer indolence. Now, if the industry is to be truly cooperative, if the smaller shareholders are not to be deprived of their votes, and it's the direct both in the labors of the use of the earnings by the will of the large capitalist in the concerns which means simply, simply their slavery, these votes which represent rashness, unthrift, self-indulgence, imprudence must be equivalent with the votes of the sagacious. Of course, then, the concern must come to grief. This directive will, which represents the aggressions of all the unwise who have remained among the small of laboring shareholders, simply because they are unwise cannot compete with the rival concerns, which is directed by the best practical wisdom. The cooperative factory, which will be a failure, and the association will dissolve in disgust of mind where the factory of the successful capitalist will succeed. The resolve that is the present plan shall be replaced by cooperative factories which shall succeed amounts simply to this, resolved, that all labor shall, be the, shall have the personal attributes of a Peter Cooper. Nature and providence concur to make men unequal. They cannot be made equal by the resolution of theorists. Once more, however, cooperate, cooperative, a factory must have Executive officers, directors, salesmen, treasurers, these must handle all its earnings and assets, supposing the system to receive the wide extension necessary for its healing, fully the relations of labor and capital, shall we find enough honest laboring men in America to fill all these responsible places? Or would so large a portion of the ventures break down through defaculation of officials as spoiled to the experiment? The morals of the strike system do not seem very well adapted to breed strict honesty. The other proposal is that the quarrels of labor and capital shall be prevented by making the national government its, itself the general industrial manager. The democratic theory is that the government reflects the combined will of all the people. This, then, is the right agency to direct industrial pursuits. Let the government be in place of the corporations and capitalists. Here are several points. 
Here, several plain thoughts give us pause. First, if this plan be good, it will be because the government direction will be better than that of the corporation or personal will. If then the government is to confer this advantage on some industries, it must confer it on all. Otherwise, we shall introduce inequality and favoritism, most odious to democratic theory. If it undertakes the operation of all industries, it becomes worse than Chinese despotism, a machine so vast as to crush out all individuality and to break down hopelessly by its own weight. Second, the success of the government management in all these industries must depend supremely on the competency and honesty of the government officials. They must commute an immense host. Personal motives to zeal fidelity will be largely annihilated. Is there enough of this high integrity in America to work these huge machines? The present government seems to have a deal of trouble in finding enough honest officials for its present small functions. Third, the government is practically represented in the persons of the magistrate, but by the nature of government, he bears the sword. His power is essentially punitive. Transgressions against his will shall be held as crimes and misdemeanors. Shall his industrious functions as the manager of numberless labors be enforced by a species of sanctions? Shall the government hold that the employee who has not watched his power loom or chiseled his stone aright? is to be corrected by the petty larcener? If not, how else? Under slavery, this negligent laborer might have been corrected by the birch under our present hireling system. He is corrected by dismissal. But under the government plan, all industries, as we saw, must be equal. The government, and whither shall it be dismissed to lazy employee? To banishment from his country? Hardly. To idleness? If he is still to have from the government his subsistence. This will be a mockery of punishment, rather a reward for idleness and an injustice to the true worker. There appears no mode of dealing for this industrial government except to treat defected workers as the citizens as larceny is treated. This suggests the fourth and hardest question of all. If government is to be the general, not to say universal, industrial agent, it must see to it that all whom it employs and subsists do honest shares of the work, for otherwise the idler will be rewarded for their sin by being set up as an aristocracy above the faithful worker, to live at ease at others' expense. Each citizen must be held responsible to government for the diligent and useful employment of this time under some efficient penalty. But the government, as such, is an abstraction, which directly touches no man. It must act through persons clothed with official power. The meaning then would be that the citizens must answer to the office holder, representing this sovereign government under some penalty for doing his share of work. But this means slavery. It is the exact definitions. The conception of this governmental plan is communistic, and every thoughtful man knows that communism either means Anarchy or slavery, it may be objected the government's clerks and postmasters now work precisely under the system and are not slaves. The reply is first that probably they sometimes do feel that they are virtually slaves, but chiefly that they become employees of the government now by their own free applications and may resign whenever they feel oppressed by their superiors and thus free themselves by returning to private life. But on the plan discussed, all this would be different. The government will be compelled to exact the adhesion of its work, workers, as it does in its conscripted soldiers whose condition is that of bondage for their term of service, and to refuse this privilege of resigning.
There appears no remedy except in the firm and, and just administration of laws, coupled with wise and equitable commercial and, and industrial legislation and the propagation of in industry. Economy and contentment among the people by means of Christian principles. There is no attitude for the government towards strikes except the legal and righteous one. If the operatives choose to form a society to forward their own interests, they have a right to do so, provided they do not infringe others' peoples. If the society chooses to quarrel with their own bread and butter by rejecting a certain work at certain wages, then they have the right to do so. But their recent employers have equal rights to go into the labor market and hire others for that work at those wages, and all other laborers have equal rights to that work if they are willing to the wages. The moment the union goes an inch beyond the mere withdrawal, the moment it become, begins to obstruct, terrorize, or beat, or murder the employers and the new employees, it has become a criminal conspiracy. The state should be put down with its prompt and firm hand as they would put down the highway robbery or a foreign invasion. To the clear and just mind, this is clear. But is there any American state which performs this duty? Alas, no. We are more likely to see the state governors corresponding with the conciliating the strikes, the power whose very end of existence is to be the terror to evildoers. Bowing to the conspiracy of evildoers who ought to be bowed down before the majesty of the law. Pitiful sight. Property is always cautious, apparently timid at the beginning of collusion, for it is conscious it is valuable. It has much to lose, but because it has so much to lose, property always defends itself resolutely when pressed to the wall. And when the period of caution has passed, properly defends herself successfully. For money is power, and the talents of acquisition which gain the money are power. One thing has already become clear to the thought of property, which then the hour of forcible defense comes. The militia of the states will be worthless. They are too near the rioters. Property will invoke as the only adequate force the standing army of the United States. And as the industrial centers are numerous and populous, the United States must have a large and wide diffused standing army to invoke. Thus the property holder will be educated by his needs and experiences in the hour of trial. To think of his state as a cipher, the Washington government has the only power. The disconnected classes who must at last be restrained by force will be educated to regard state authority in, it, in a shadow and federal authority. As the substantial fear, the surest result of the approaching strife will continue thus be to complete the practical extinction of state sovereignty and to the consolidation of the federation into one empire. It will be an empire in government at a bayonet.